Let's take a moment to pray. It's time for us to move on. Living God, we ask that you will come now by your word and by your spirit to set us up and to send us out on our Lenten journey through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, it's a great privilege to be with you here today. I've heard much about this church and its congregation in the past few years, and you have an extraordinary man as your minister, poetic, prophetic, pastoral, a brave and creative thinker who I have the very highest respect for, who's been a dear friend of mine for more than 20 years, and I hope you know what a treasure he is. I'm sure you do. I train ministers for a living, and I tell you my standards are high, and I would love to have him as my minister, so take good care of him. As a congregation over these next few weeks, you are setting out to explore Jesus' journeys in Luke's gospel, and I want to begin that journey with you today from the passage we read in Luke chapter 9. And you'll see that the passage begins when the days drew near for him to be taken up. From the early centuries of the Christian church, the weeks before Easter came to have a special significance for Christians. At first, this was because it was a time when adults were being prepared for their baptism on Easter Sunday, and they were entering the final stages of their catechism. But over time, it came to be recognized as a period when there could be a a rededication, a renewal of everyone in the church, a, a kind of springtime of faith, as we've heard already, for the whole church. The Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor talks about how in the modern era, Time has become very samey, or that's my paraphrase. He talks about the flat, empty, homogenous time of modern secular society. And the shape of the Christian year offers us an alternative to that. It's a way of giving the time of our lives to God and receiving it back from God. And if it helps you to think about that as the season of Lent, then there are rich traditions around that which are being rediscovered across a whole range of Christian denominations today. If you find that helpful, as they say, in Frozen, just let it go. So Luke writes that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And if you went back and read through Luke chapter 9 you would find that there have already been three warnings from Jesus to the disciples about where he is going and about what lies ahead. And you would see, too, the confusion in their responses to these warnings. Luke is showing us already in chapter 9 how hard it is going to be both to understand and to accept what lies ahead. Because Jesus is walking towards trouble. And these foretellings, I think, are meant to prepare us for that. There is a sense of inevitability, a sense of foreboding. After that dazzling mountaintop story of the transfiguration, there is a sense that the skies are beginning to darken. There is a sense of some bigger script unfolding. And within this script, there is political provocation. There is religious hostility. There is a wave of popular excitement. There is trouble brewing with the authorities. There is a growing sense that he will not be allowed to get away with this. There is all of this. And for Luke, 
there is also a deep and pervasive sense that God is in this. God is in this journey, and God is on this journey. And there's a striking detail which we get twice in our reading, slightly obscured by the uh, version we read this morning. But it says, Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. It's a phrase which comes over from the Hebrew Scriptures. Men and women and even God in the Hebrew Bible can have their face set for or against something, towards or away from something. And we use it too, don't we? I can see that you're set on this. There's no reasoning with you. It's an image which smacks of determination and stubbornness even. I have decided no going back, no turning back, no looking back. And you can see it, can't you, in someone's face when they are set in something. You can see it in a friend. A mother can see it in a son. father can see it in a daughter. And I always wonder whether you could have seen something in Jesus' face. That might be a bit fanciful, I don't know. But for the Samaritans who lived by this route to Jerusalem, this road to Jerusalem, I think that phrase meant something very different. Because they lived on the route. And when it was festival time, they knew what to expect. We're used to Samaritans, aren't we? Or at least to one good one. And if you've ever wondered where the bad ones were, well, here they are in Luke chapter 9. Jews and Samaritans, two communities divided by religious differences, different ideas about how you worship and where you worship. You pray this way, we pray that way. You pray on this mountain, we pray on this mountain. And if your village lies on the Jerusalem road, then you are primed for this because every year at festival time they show up again. Festival time, you could say, is a kind of marching season for the Jews. You can tell by how they're dressed, by the crowds traveling up together, by the songs they sing, above all by how their faces are set, by where they are headed. And it seems pretty clear from our scripture in Luke 9 that the Samaritans hate it. I wonder if during this marching season some of the Jewish pilgrims sang louder as they passed Samaritan villages just to wind them up, just to make a point. So when the disciples ask about stopping over, they get told where to go. You're having a laugh, pilgrims. Doors are slammed, blinds are pulled down, kids are told to come inside. I wonder if a few youths shout abuse and throw some stones. Now, those are all my imagination, not Luke's. But Luke does tell us that they would not receive him. They would not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And their reaction provokes a reaction in return. When James and John see it, the hurt and the anger just begins to boil over in them. And so they say, okay, Lord, you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them. I grew up in the exclusive wing of the Plymouth Brethren. And I tell you, we called fire down on everyone. 
Baptists, Catholics, Methodists, Presbyterians, Free Presbyterians, Pentecostals, Anglicans, Open Brethren, anyone not as tight or as biblical as we were. And it might have seemed harsh, but we were pretty sure they deserved it. (laughs) But let me give James and John some credit here. At least they asked. I'm not sure we ever really asked properly. Because the crucial words here are, Lord, do you want us to? Do you want us to call down fire from heaven on these infidels and apostates and enemies of the truth, these pseudo-believers? And I love that it says Jesus turned and rebuked them. He turned as if he was already moving on while they were still looking back and shaking their fists, while they were still glowering at the jeering Samaritans on the edge of the village. Lord, do you want us to? And Jesus says, what do you think? Is that what you think I want? Is that how you think I usually deal with Samaritans? Do I want you to? No, I don't want you to. What is it you say in Belfast? Catch yourselves on. Note to self, first Sunday in Lent 2015, when tempted to call fire down from heaven this year, maybe try asking Jesus first. Oh, and when dealing with Samaritans, think about how Jesus dealt with them. Because Jesus' way of engaging was not to call down fire from heaven. It was to take the risk of sitting down and talking to someone his own community wished him to stay away from and whose community wanted him to stay away from her. And if you want to read the story, it's there in chapter 4 of John's Gospel. Some of us in Glasgow have been reading Jonah recently, and arguably Jonah was the most successful prophet in the whole of the Bible. But the comedy and the tragedy of Jonah is that he didn't want God to have mercy on Nineveh. And as we wondered about this, we were struck by Jonah chapter 3 and verse 8, which I have to say I'd never really noticed before but which names the sin of Nineveh very clearly in terms of the violence that was in their hands. And suddenly I think Jonah made more sense to me because where people have engaged in violence and we might think of IS or we might think of Boko Haram or we might think of examples much nearer to home, it can become impossibly hard to want them to find mercy. Jonah says he wants to die. He chokes on his anger and the shame and the outrage and the unfairness of it all. And in our group in Glasgow, which included a Roman Catholic woman from the south of Ireland and a Protestant woman from the north, we thought about whether, like Jonah, we too need our enemies to stay our enemies. Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? Do you want us to call down fire from heaven? If we're going to walk through Lent with Jesus Christ, and if we're going to do that prayerfully, then we will walk as people who are learning to ask, Lord, what do you want us to do? And if we're walking and traveling with Luke, then very soon in chapter 11, we will have more thinking to do about how we relate to Samaritans. 
In Luke chapter 9, Jesus moves on, and the disciples move on with him. And if we haven't already had enough to fry our heads and our hearts in this passage this morning, there are three encounters on the road, three exchanges which help us to learn more about what it means to be traveling as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So someone comes to Jesus and says, I will follow you wherever you go. And to another person, Jesus says, follow me. And a third says, I will follow you, Lord. And to the first, Jesus gives a challenge. To the second, he gives a commission. And to the third, he gives a warning. You see, if we're going to travel with Jesus, it might be important to know what kind of challenge we are setting ourselves up for, especially if we are people who are used to our lives being kind of secure and comfortable and predictable. Because we hear in Luke chapter 9 that there is a kind of insecurity, kind of homelessness even, which comes with following Jesus. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And sometimes for disciples, the journey has to become home. We are what some theologians have called resident aliens, what others have called sojourners. We are given the gift of traveling light, and we're given the call to keep moving because here we have no continuing city. If that challenge sounds daunting, the commission which follows could be heartbreaking. Asked to follow the Jesus, the man says, well, let me first go and bury my father. And to this most basic human desire to honor and care for our dead, Jesus here gives a very harsh and uncompromising response. Leave the dead to bury the dead. There can be times when both the obligations and the ties of family and the obligations and ties of culture and tradition need to be overturned in order for us to journey from where we are to where God needs us to be. We were privileged this morning to witness the grace of God in baptism, to be reminded that for Christians, water is always thicker than blood. In baptism, we die to all that deals death, and we rise to what brings life. And to the third potential disciple, who simply wants the chance to say his goodbyes, Jesus gives a famous warning about putting our hands to the plow and looking back. And we could say that's the opposite of setting your face towards Jerusalem, of setting your heart on the goal and keeping your eyes on the prize. You know, when Steve sent me the scripture passage for this morning, I thought, thanks, Steve. But having lived with it over this week, I do want to say thanks, because Lent is a time to face uncomfortable truths and to wrestle with unsettling questions. It's a time when we are called to go on a journey with Jesus, to set our faces towards Good Friday. It's a time to follow him beyond the enmities which poison and embitter us. It's a time to follow him beyond the comfort and the security of our own foxholes and nests. It's a time to choose life over death. It's a time to choose the future over the past. So this week, as we go back to school or to work, as we live with our neighbors and our families and our colleagues, as we respond to whatever life is going to bring our way, May God give us grace and mercy and the power of the Holy Spirit to set our faces to follow Jesus in all of our living. And let God's people say the Amen.